This evening I'd like to speak about integrity, strength and empowerment in the context of Dharma practice. And probably said this before, but uh, one of the most simple articulations of the whole Dharma teaching is the description of it as the middle way, as the finding of balance between extremes. And it is necessary for us to acknowledge the degree to which we are vulnerable and subject to uncontrollable conditions. It's necessary to open to and recognize the significance of the reality of things that change, that do not accord with what we wish. That we, that our life is subject to change, is not in our control. And yet it is equally important to understand that we are not ultimately defined in our life or confined in our life by this truth of change, of uncontrollability. Wisdom and Dharma practice points to the real source of power, of strength, as lying not in an ability to control, to predict, or to own our experience, the perhaps conditioned or traditional ways we would seek power or strength, but in our ability to respond. And in fact, Dharma teachings and Dharma practice is essentially a response to life. It is not a set of views or a belief system that we can subscribe to and therefore qualify as a Buddhist. It's like we sometimes overemphasize the ism in the word and forget a little bit about the, the Buddha. And of course, religions tend to do that by sort of matter of course, it seems, as they become institutionalized. I prefer to translate the word as awakeism, which is what Buddha, uh, Buddhism means. Awakeism. Ah, that's a little different. And it's actually the practice of being awake. It's a response. It's not a belief system. You can't believe in awakeism. It doesn't make sense. And it's not supposed to make sense in those terms. And the core practice that we're engaged in, engaged in is also defined by what can become a selection or a group of core beliefs and often would be described as what Buddhists believe in, known as the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering and unsatisfactoriness in mind, that there is a cause for that, which is craving and grasping, that there is an end to that suffering, the liberation born of letting go, and that there is a way, a path, known as the middle way, a path to cultivate that relief. Now, if we simply believe those things, there is suffering, there's a cause of it, there's an end of it, and there's a way, and think that that makes us into Dharma practitioners, then we've kind of missed the essence. Because the essence of the truth is to, they invite a response from us the response to the truth of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, to see that this is an element of life 
the response is to understand this this we need to do to recognize the truth that there is a cause of suffering of craving, of grasping, of self-centered and identified patterns of fear and aversion and confusion that, that drive us this we need to respond to by abandoning that grasping to fear to desire to confusion the end of the path the end of suffering that is spoken of this is not to be believed in as some sort of afterlife and salvation that we hope for but something to be realised this is the response that is called to realise this what does this mean for us now here in this lifetime and the path the path of awakening the path that leads to the end of suffering this is to be cultivated it's a response again it's something we do with these things we don't just write them down and keep them in a book under our pillow giving us happy Buddhist dreams so this ability to respond it's like what is possible for us in the face of the way things are this is the question of our life the question of our practice and just as a I think a rather beautiful expression of how one might understand and approach what it means to be here rather than bemoaning what we don't have or how difficult it might be in an uncontrollable changing world we could say what responses can we make how can we meet this and a poem written by an anonymous 14th century samurai a spiritual warrior he said this I have no parents I make the heavens and earth my parents I have no home I make awareness my home I have no life or death I make the tides of breathing my life and death I have no divine power I make honesty my divine power I have no friends I make my mind my friend I have no enemy I make carelessness my enemy I have no armor I make benevolence my armor I have no castle I make immovable mind my castle I have no sword I make absence of self my sword I could probably reflect on those verses for the rest of the time that we have I, I, I'm not going to tonight a couple of them I'd like to mention in the context of strength and power to have no divine power but to make honesty our divine power to align our words and the way we are with truth I'll speak a little more about that later I have no armour 
I can't protect myself from harm. I make benevolence my armour. What does that mean? The real danger, the real harm that happens to us in this world is not that we at times are hurt, because this is inevitable, but that our heart closes as a result of that. To make benevolence our armour is to actually commit ourselves to opening our heart in the face of this world and its struggles that we experience and that we see. And in that we cannot actually be harmed. We can be hurt. This is part of our condition. But harm is that which lasts, and hurt does not last. As we learn more and more truthfully and deeply to keep the heart open in the face of life, And castle, we have no place we can hide in to be safe. I have no castle. There is no place like this. I make immovable mind my castle. Developing that capacity of mind that can stay steady, upright, firm and strong, in the midst of whatever may come. This we can do. This is not dependent on the uncontrollable, unpredictable things of life. But this is within our own potential, our own capacity, as a fruit of our practice. And the path of practice that we're engaged in is one that includes all of our life. It must do so. And traditionally it's described in terms of three primary fields the field of action, the field of practice, the field of wisdom. Traditionally, in the language of the Buddha, sila, samadhi, and panya. Action being sila, samadhi being practice, and wisdom being panya. And these three together comprise the three limbs of the path of awakening, the way liberation, that we walk, that we traverse. And they also comprise the basis of our capacity to empower ourselves and to realise the remarkable strength that we have access to when we understand what its roots are and no longer seek for that power or that strength in an attempt to control things that are beyond our control. In practice, in the field of practice, cultivation of heart and mind, we can learn to not be blown by the circumstances and the conditions of our life. It's as though, and perhaps a little like the metaphor I used a couple of nights ago about the ship in the ocean and the wheel is not connected to the rudder and therefore being blown in the vast ocean by the wind and carried by the waves and the current it's seemingly out of control and in danger at any moment of being turned side on to a wave and capsized but in fact it is not that we are rudderless in our lives it is the intentions that we form, intentions for practice, intentions for goodness and wholesomeness, that actually provide 
the direction and provides the sense of rudder, of steering in the world, in our life. That doesn't mean we can control our course because still the wind and the waves will have their, will have their effect, will determine the particular waters, which body of the ocean or the seas that we find ourselves in is not up to us, but how we orient ourselves within whatever body of water we find, within whatever storm we experience, or equally period of calm, how we orient ourselves is dependent upon our intentions. And these are the rudder, these are the basis of finding a way to navigate the ocean of our life and the primary intention that the Dharma teachings speak on is the intention towards non-harming towards non-greed towards non-cruelty and the intentions towards practice to cultivate and develop the heart and mind these intentions give direction in our life and are the source of great great power, great strength when we really understand their significance. And together with that is the capacity of the steadfastness of mind born of both a degree of collectedness and gathering of our attention but equally of the capacity that we cultivate which we can call equanimity. That ability to be present in the face of what is no matter what it might be whether something we would wish for or not. That as we sit here, time and time again, we are asked by our life, we are asked to learn to be here with things as they are. And that capacity, it's like the keel on the boat, that you know, big flat thing that sticks down deep into the water beneath the hull and stops it falling over without which it just falls over very easily. It's like that sense of deepening equanimity, of steadiness, that allows us to be with what we need to be with in this moment. And it was once described by a Tibetan master, equanimity, as being equally near to all things. Remarkable way of understanding it. Not about being calmly, distantly detached from things, but equally near to all things. As soon as we lean forwards towards or lean backwards away from, we're off balance. And in that condition of being off balance, we easily, in fact, capsize. Or find ourselves running or driven. You know, if we're off balance, we have to run in that direction or you know, step in that direction to not fall over. Unable to really make choices that serve us. This capacity, this power of our being deepens through practice. The ability to stay present and equally close to all things, to not lose our connection to life in the face of what it presents us. This is the empowerment, the strength we find in this quality. And this capacity to stay steady, to actually gather ourselves where we are, 
and to know clearly just what is happening, to see this moment's experience. That focus and steadiness, we could say, the castle that we build which with each brick of mindful moment, each moment we remember to come back, we build the strength of that capacity just as we build a wall brick by brick. Not, we're not talking about a literal wall here, not building a prison wall, enough of those already. But just that sense of building up the strength of a quality, of a capacity of our being that we all have. And that from that foundation, from that basis, from that place of steadfastness, we can choose to enter experiences when it seems appropriate that we need to be there, to open to the difficult, equally to open to the, the sweet, the beautiful and the nourishing. But equally that we can choose to move away and say, that's enough, this no longer serves me, there's no value anymore in exploring this. I've seen and learnt what I can in this experience and to understand the importance and the power of that capacity also so that we are not compelled to have to be with everything but equally not compelled or unable to be with anything that we need to be with. We have the ability to choose what is appropriate in the way we are and with what we are paying attention to and engaging with in our inner life and equally in our world in our interaction and this capacity to stay steady this is really the capacity to face ultimately the inner forces that challenge us that actually when unconscious or unaddressed disempower us profoundly. The forces of fear, of desire and of ignorance, of unknowing, not in the wise way of innocence, but in the belief in that which is not true. These things disempower us. And we need to learn to face them, to meet them, and as we do learn to do so, we again, the, 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 the dharmic potency of our being matures, strengthens, aligns itself and becomes more powerful. Nisargadatta Maharaj from India once said, Freedom from desire is not the absence of desire arising but the absence of any need to satisfy and this is significant of course it's the same with regard to fear freedom from fear is not the absence of fear arising but the absence or the ending of the sense of compulsion to have to act it out what the story it produces is suggesting. In the end, fear and desire have no power beyond 
the place where we no longer believe what they are saying to us. When we simply see them for what they are and understand that to follow the momentum of them, to allow ourselves to be coerced or compelled by them, does not serve us. And that from a place of conscious caring and interest in our well-being and the well-being of all, we can choose to say no to these. And yet that means we have to be willing to be there with the discomfort that produces, the unease. And yet we find we can do this. This is possible for us. And we've all done it here on this retreat many times, simply just to still be here. And from that, that place of trusting in our capacity to face fear, to face wanting, and equally to face the delusion of ignorance that suggests I know, when really we aren't quite so sure how things are or how they will be, and just acknowledge the process that's occurring but coming back as a reference point to what is most important to us. The place of integrity in practice is critical. That place where we understand that what we see as being of primary value in our life or in any situation must be the reference point for our choices. Must be the place that we learn to act from and is the place which we do learn to act from. Though of course not perfectly and not every time, but more and more we find we are able to do this. To make choices which serve our deeper interests, our deeper values. To see how although at times it seems easier to go with the conditioned response, to grasp for this, to avoid that, when we look at our life, when we feel to the depths and the core of our life, we see it is so much more difficult to live in that way than to make this steadfast, courageous and committed intention and at times effort to not be driven by those forces. Now that doesn't mean we have to make a battle against them, but that we need to find the capacity within ourselves to stay steady in the face of those forces and from that place remember that it does not serve us to sacrifice what is most important in the name of short-term gain or comfort and we know this if anyone asks us but remembering it, learning it at a cellular level what that means there's a story of a uh, Mullah Nasruddin, who I mentioned earlier, and he was once having a discussion with the other wise man in the area, and uh, Nasruddin is a, he has a little bit of a reputation as sometimes being foolish as well as being a wise man, and the, the other wise man was giving him a bit of a lecture saying, Nasruddin, you know, you should do as I do. 
you, you live, you're so poor, you, you just have rags to dress and you have to live on a bare diet of dry, stale bread and old chickpeas. You know, what an existence you have. Whereas I, I have the finest robes and the, the best food. I have a wonderful mansion that I live in. And all that it takes for that is you simply need to flatter and bow down to the emperor and just do whatever he says. And all this can be yours. <laughs> You're such a foolish man. If only you would learn to bow down to the emperor and be subservient and flatter him. You wouldn't have to live on chickpeas and bread. Nazarin looked at him and he said, You know, if you could learn to live on chickpeas and bread, you wouldn't have to bow down and be subservient to the emperor. <laughs> when we know what's most important, it actually isn't that difficult. That's not to say that at some level it isn't hard, but the choice becomes clear, the way becomes clear. We're not conflicted over the stuff anymore as our clarity of what is true and important to us deepens. And there's a very touching example of this. A woman uh, I know in America who's a friend and a practitioner of many years regularly sits retreats at the Insight Meditation Society in America where I spent quite a bit of time with living and teaching and um, She's a musician and uh, a musician and a young musician in the uh, the New York music scene, you could say, and a uh, very spirited young woman. And a uh, she entered a competition. It was this very important, prestigious competition for new talent. The result of the the winner of it would be given a a recording contract for a, a new CD for a CD with um, you know national distribution and the national tour. And she entered this competition and won it. Remarkably, wonderfully. Very talented. And then she discovered that the competition was sponsored by a tobacco company. And the other thing her life was committed to at that time, apart from her music, was a campaign against uh, the tobacco industry's advertising and all the harm that is born of that, that we know so well. And it was quite an incredible place she found herself in. This was her life. Years of struggle. And no guarantee of ever rising out of the, the smoky pub scene. And yet, to, do, to, to take this prize would have gone against something very important to her. She turned it down. She said, no, I don't want your prize. I don't want your contract. I'm not taking this career on a plate. If it comes at that cost. Incredibly moving and touching, the courage and the strength. That's not to say she wasn't scared by turning this down. This might have been it. It might mean she could never become the musician she felt she had the potential to be. And I'm happy to report that over the years since then, she has really come into her own and she has recorded and uh, has a very wonderful career and uh, plays around America and sometimes Europe as well. But it, it, 
it really moves me to just reflect on her her commitment and her courage in that situation something not apart from practice and the courage and the commitment we need to actually meet our life with our sense of what is true and important really there as a guide for us though it may at times ask for sacrifice it's always worth living in accordance to what is most important to us that there's a way in which the integrity that is established through that a sense of being at harmony with oneself even in the face of challenge and struggle actually gives the power to one's life that ultimately is unstoppable not in producing any particular result it doesn't guarantee that you become the musician you dreamed of but the, the music is really a it's a pathway to something deeper or whatever your life is interested in is a pathway to something deeper of authenticity, of satisfaction of a genuine life, a meaningful life and this is guaranteed if you make that commitment so how it will look certainly one cannot know but in the end that's not the most important thing so this field of practice of cultivation, of training gives a basis for that integrity and that integrity also expresses itself as in the story I just related in in the realm of action in fact that's really where integrity shows itself the realm of action another limb of the, the way the path of liberation of Dharma teaching and the action the field of action has two primary realms or elements the area of non-harming as a basis for our life of taking on a commitment to not harming to present this actually is very empowering again because of a sense of integrity that comes when we understand that we will not when we understand for ourselves and in ourselves we don't have to tell anyone else about it particularly that we do not wish to and we will not compromise our care and concern for others in order to gain some short-term selfish advantage because we realize it doesn't actually serve us it doesn't actually produce an advantage and ultimately it corrodes and undermines the very foundation of our connection with our our goodness our, our aspiration for welfare in life and happiness it can't survive or sustain itself in the face of disregarding that of others because ultimately we are not separate from others ultimately we cannot treat them other than we would wish to be treated and when we understand this and live this again there is remarkable power it gives to our life strength it gives to our life because it binds us in to the wholeness and the fullness and the richness and the vitality of a larger interwoven dynamic tapestry of existence rather than just being me out there against the world trying to get it for me the way I want it and that's not a very powerful place to be so sometimes it looks that way and deceives us 
Because really, when we're just considering ourselves, when we're lost in that, when we're willing to cause harm in order to further selfish interests, it undermines us profoundly. And actually, I think we know it, because we feel, and we've all done it. It's not to say we're not, sort of, not some doctrine of being perfect here, because of course there are times it will happen. But when we look at it, we see, we see the regret and the sadness. It speaks to us of when we can, when it's possible, when we're conscious and clear enough to make those choices that actually refrain from causing harm. And in fact, go beyond that to actually contribute to welfare, to be of benefit to others. Together with the non-harming, a commitment to honesty, to aligning ourselves with the way things are, acknowledging our inner limitations, not trying to pretend they're not there, equally acknowledging our positive qualities and our remarkable potential, not denying that out of some false humility, and trusting the way things are, to seek to see truth, to speak truth, to live truth. This is what honesty is about. And again, this aligns us with the way things are. And it is from that that the source of all power comes. (coughs) So non-harming and honesty are two parts of the way of being in the world that actually is the source of power. And the third is compassionate action. Our ability to respond to things, to situations, to people, to ourselves, when suffering is present. Understanding our relationship to life, our place in this world, is to understand that caring for ourselves and caring for others is the same thing. That that which harms us ultimately harms others, and that which harms others ultimately harms us. And that we need to find ways to be in the world that respond with care and sensitivity to both our needs and the needs of others, not disregarding one for the other. It's not compassion to disregard one's own needs in the service of others, any more than it is compassion to disregard others' needs in the service of one's own, but to find ways that serve all. And this can be done. But sometimes what we can feel in a world where there's so much suffering, where there's so much difficulty, where there's so much conflict and exploitation and violence, and poverty and starvation. You know, each day, each day, 40,000 children die for not having enough food. It's remarkably difficult to really let that in. I'm not sure I can do it. It's kind of hard to imagine 40,000 people, let alone them all just dying today, under five years old because they didn't have good nutrition and food and water. And in the face of it, we kind of recoil. It's like, whoa, I can't deal with that. I certainly can't fix it, you know. I'd be happy to, if I could, but it's beyond me. So we often kind of turn away because it's too much. 
and it's often, of course, the same inside ourselves. It's like we look in here and what we find. Seems like 40,000 screaming voices in there saying, Help! Or I'm dying. Or I'm suffering. And it's like, too much, I can't deal with that. It's going to take forever. We kind of at some level don't want to deal with it. And yet something in us wants to respond, and it's something vital and authentic and important. And if we disregard it, we lose touch with another vital channel that links us to our power. So the power of life is not our power in a personal way, but as part of life we see life suffering and the response is to wish to heal that suffering. It's inevitable and natural when we're actually in a connected condition that this is the response. But all too often because we don't see how or we can't fix it all, we kind of shut that down. We close it off. If I can't do it all, I'm not going to do anything. If I can't save all of those children, I just won't even think about them. If I can't solve all of the stuff in my heart, then I don't want to know about it seems like the way to go. But that that response that is there, that natural response, human response, living alive response to suffering, which we feel, which we sense at times, when, when, we're, when we're there, when we're open, it actually has potency in it that we strengthen and that we, we tap into and develop simply by finding what we can respond to, what we can do. And there's always something you can do. There's always a response that's possible. The, the, the smallest response, but it's still a response, is just, it's like the heart going, ah. Oh. And being willing to be open to the, the rawness of the fact that that isn't going to take it away from them. But nonetheless, we're just aligning ourselves with that aspiration and wish. And that's a response. And if that's all that one can do, it's important to do it. It's important to let that response come. Because the response that comes is the response that will actually bring us back into relationship with what is happening, the suffering. And in that place of relationship, perhaps other responses come. And we also can find a a strength that we might not have imagined or looked for in that in that entry into the responsiveness of our being, that responsiveness of life to relieve, to reduce, to heal, suffering, pain, in the many ways that it's shown in this world. When I was in Israel, in the first week of April, as I mentioned earlier, joining this walk for peace called The Walk. And our basic intention was to walk for peace and in peace and to just trust what would happen from that. And as I said, we were gathered a group of people, most of whom were very scared, in a country full of people who were very, very scared, in a place where violence was taking place on a daily basis. People were losing their lives, their family, their friends. Their sense of being able to live with 
any spark of hope or joy or well-being. And in that place, we asked ourselves, and others certainly asked us, will this make any difference? What could it possibly do in the midst of people crazed with fear and hatred and armed with weapons and explosives and willing to use them again and again and again? What difference could this make? We asked ourselves, television reporters asked us, bystanders asked us. We didn't know what difference it could make. But the need to respond was so strong in these people. They said, and the feeling amongst this, these people that organised it and others involved was, we have to respond to this. We can't just not do anything. There's a hopelessness and a despair that just settles around you and totally disempowers you when you're in the midst of such suffering and you can't respond or at least believe the thought that says, I can do nothing here. And the same was related even by one man who came from America. He said, you know, we're safe over here, it seems, relatively so, compared to what's going on for you. Though, of course, the events of September 11th last year somewhat shaken that perception. But still, the ability to respond to it, he said, 5,000 miles away, what can I do? So he came into this land of fear and blood and hopelessness and equally the people from the country and more so perhaps who came not knowing what they could find in this process but needing to make a response and this having been the response that occurred we want to walk silently we want to walk peacefully we want to let our peacefulness and our silence speak in a language that we hope will be heard, that we hope will make a difference, that we hope will transform things, but which we have no guarantee of doing any of those things at all. And I'd like to read the report that one young woman on the walk wrote and circulated. She said, I grew up in Jerusalem and lived in it for most of my first 26 years. I love this town of stone and rock, and I used to think I could never live anywhere else. As the years passed, I moved around searching for a bit of green, a waft of clear, clean, calm air in the sea of Jerusalem's thick anxiety. My wanderings took me further and further away, and I found peace, tranquility, and space away from the anger, the hatred, and the pain of this intensity. On visits to my childhood home, I felt suffocated and confined. The peace and openness would quickly leave, and in their place would rise up walls of rock, wider and higher than those adorning Jerusalem's heart. I knew that I could never live here again. The last 18 months have been the worst. On weekend visits to Jerusalem, we have been too fearful to visit any of our favourite places. At night from my mother's flat we can hear shooting in the Bet Jala, Gilo area. Lying sleepless in bed, thinking of the people living in terror right at this moment, feeling helpless, 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 just a few kilometres away, and nothing we can do. I return to Israel 
at this time with the image of the yogi in the tiger's mouth strong in my mind. Returning to a place I find so harsh, brutal and unrelenting with a delicate flower in my arms. Can it ever be seen? The months passed. The wish to act flowing into the dharma of everyday life. Amongst the days, the thread of helping to plan a walk. A walk for peace. A walk for understanding. A walk for sanity. My last month in Israel began and so did the walk. Eight days and nights of work, of service, of silent walking, of deep listening to everything around me, the rain coming down, the wind in the trees, the steps of the walkers, the helicopters which passed above us nearly every day on their way to destruction and pain. The last day we entered Jerusalem. A veil lifts a veil of despair and confusion. Light comes in. In this light I enter Jerusalem, city of my birth, my childhood, my despair. In this light I walk within the hurt of Jerusalem, surrounded by it in every pavement and tree, in every smile and angry word. It is a sad place, Jerusalem. For me it is a place of hope. For it is here within the tiger's mouth that I have come. And the days of walking and of silence, of deep listening, of a deep intention to open my heart and walk with it, bared, towards the tiger. These days have bore me here, and my heart is open. It feels the pain without clenching tight. It listens to the angry words without turning away. I am focused and calm and loving as I take one step and then another. Part of this silent line of walkers, part of this noisy multitude of beings. And in this space everything can happen and also not a thing. I have returned and I have never left Jerusalem. Not just for this young woman, but for pretty much everyone on the walk and equally for so many that we touched and equally those that we met along the way and equally those who simply heard that this had occurred. A remarkable sense of hope and empowerment to just do what one can do and trust that that is what one is called to do in this situation. That the results and the effects and how things are in this world are not in our control. But what we can do and what we actually must do is respond in some way that we can that honours our truth and capacities and limitations and yet equally responds to what we see in front of us. Your presence in the world already changes us. It is different than it otherwise would be for the simple fact that you are here. 
one moment of kindness in your life, intentional caring or generosity, and the world is a kinder place for it. For sure and absolutely this is so. And there are ways that we can find to respond to this life that we're in. That in a, in a way that seems to sear or burn through the core of our being and our, and our pain and our, at times, sense of despair and hopelessness. That actually burns through that to a place where life speaks with a voice of possibility and hope that re-inspires us and re-empowers us to again face this day, this moment, this situation that gives us or that perhaps reveals to us the strength is there that we need. That we have this power to tap into life and trust the response that it brings to find our way in this world. And in this we come into the third field or foundation of the path, the way, the field of wisdom, of understanding. To see that we are not separate and apart from this life, that we are interconnected, interdependent, in relationship to everything else that is. And that the sense of being separate and apart from begins to soften and dissolve as we examine it, as we see that it's simply a frozen contraction of fear and desire and confusion that we've somehow unquestioningly believed in and invested in and solidified, but that doesn't have any actual ultimate substance to itself. We see this as we meet it, as we explore it, and it's like the warmth of our willingness to be there, the caring of our intention, the interest. It's like light and warmth that comes to bear on what we could call a block of ice that just starts to melt, that starts to soften. Or like, a, like ice and water, or like an iceberg in the ocean, just slowly it dissolves into that medium which it is actually not that different from, apart from its lost its fluidity. Ice and water. It feels cold, it feels hard, it feels sharp. It's brittle, it's jagged, it can shatter. But ultimately it's the same stuff as that soft, liquid, fluid element that it floats in. It's like we live our lives seeking for something and all too easily substituting things for what our deeper yearning calls us to. We're really looking for truth, for understanding. And we don't find that in the world of things. So ultimately neither do we find it apart from that world. And how does water find its way to the ocean. How does water 
find its way to the ocean. What is it that calls water to flow as it does? We might say gravity, but that's just an idea that describes what happens if things flow or fall down, but it doesn't actually say why it happens. It only describes it. It does not explain it. And yet water flows to the ocean. How does it do that? We are drawn to truth and to freedom as water flows to the ocean because water is of the nature of the ocean. It isn't different than it and flows to it. Of course, how else could it be? And we seek truth, we seek freedom. Of course we do, because we are not of a different nature than that which we seek, which calls us to itself, itself to itself, us to ourselves. This is the spiritual journey. And we can't avoid it, even if we wish to. We can't avoid it, even if we wish to. Like a wave on the ocean, a ripple, with its own shape and form and unique conditions, we flow, we move. Our life carries us more than we carry our life. Our life moves through us more than we move through life. And in that journey, it might be that we, at some point, catch a glimpse of the shore line. And we see in our wave moving towards the shore that in front of us the waves are crashing on the ocean's beach and being destroyed, disappearing, it seems, from existence. And we might think, this is my destiny. I too will be destroyed. And feeling vulnerable and helpless and perhaps terrified at that prospect. And yet the waves, of course, move to the beach, to the shore. They cannot turn around and go back any more than we can move towards our birth instead of towards our death. And yet, waves crashing on the shore, their shape, their form, their particularity is dissolved in an instant as though it was never there. But is the water affected? Is the water hugged when the wave crashes on the shore? Is the water lost? No, it isn't, is it? And yet, somehow, when we believe that we're the wave and lose sight of the fact that we are the ocean, we then become vulnerable to extinction. But how could a wave be other than the ocean? How could it be apart from the wholeness and the vastness of that body, that element? In that way too, we are not apart from life, other than life. And the, the flow of our own unique, creative, dynamic expression of that life 
is temporary. And yet equally it is not temporary. Because what it is, is part of life itself. And when we understand that, there is a fearlessness and a and a strength that is discovered, that is unshakable, because it is not vulnerable to destruction in the way that we perhaps have thought. And yet that's not to say that anything we might see or feel or think can last beyond the boundaries of this life. No thing, no experience. And go beyond that gateway. And yet, life does not die. And in this understanding, there is no death, there is no birth. And things are just as they are. How else could they be? So may we all deepen in our walking of this path of awakening, of practice, of action, of wisdom. May all beings awaken to freedom. (laughs) 